Hello, welcome to Stages. I'm your host, Peter Ayers, and I wanted to start this episode by sharing some exciting information. The Stages podcast will record live in Sydney for the very first time as part of the Ideas Program at the 2022 Vivid Festival. Engaging and informative, the show is a vital chronicle of oral histories from Australia's rich arts heritage. The podcast has featured 285 conversations thus far with creative artists and performers from a range of performing arts disciplines. This three-series event at Vivid will celebrate the contribution of three key elements vital to the art of telling stories. On Thursday, June 2nd, my guest will be producer Carmen Pavlovich. Thursday, June 9th, we welcome costume designers Jennifer Irwin and Julie Lynch. And the series is completed on Thursday, June 16th, when our guest is the artistic director of the Griffin Theatre Company, Declan Green. Tickets are free, and to register, just visit the Vivid website and search for Stages Live. There are going to be three fantastic conversations, and it'll be great to have you in the audience, watching Stages on stage. We look forward to your company. And now, here's today's episode. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creative... Then the next block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. (laughs) Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until... I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. Ego in check, me. (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. (laughs) It's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Eyes, and you're listening to The Stages Podcast. If you've joined us for the first time, a big welcome. And if you're joining us again, welcome back. Thanks for tuning in. Adelaide-born Shane Placentino graduated from the Australian Ballet School in 1990 and was accepted into the Australian Ballet in 1991. After 10 years with the Australian Ballet, Shane departed and joined the Sydney Dance Company. He has danced the full classical and contemporary repertoire. A move into the world of opera has seen him embrace the various guises of choreographer and director. For Opera Australia, he has assisted on productions of The Merry Widow and West Side Story. As revival director, his work has brought to vivid life the opera's Faust, The Merry Widow, Aida, Madame Butterfly, and Turandot. In May, he directs global opera sensation Jonas Kaufmann in Olivier Puy's celebrated production of Wagner's Lohengrin. The opera plays May 14th to 24th at the State Theatre Arts Centre Melbourne in a stunning production bound to thrill and delight. Shane Placentino joined stages to describe the task ahead of him in reviving the opera for its Australian season. He also reflects on a journey through dance that has led him to his cherished role as a director-choreographer with Opera Australia. So Shane, um, 
Placentino, Placentino. You say tomato, I say tomato. Is there a correct way of saying your surname? Well, in Italy, yeah. Placentino. Right. But it's anglicised, so it can be Placentino. <laughs> Cappuccino, Cappuccino. <laughs> Same thing, isn't it? Yes. Language. I guess um, working in opera, which are often in foreign tongues, you have to be a bit of a linguist. Which I'm not. Right. I don't speak any other language. I try my best with Italian, but unfortunately I didn't grow up learning Italian. And I think those people that do grow up with a language, for some known reason, I think they find it easier then to um, transfer those skills to other languages. But I'm trying my best with Italian, definitely. You're going to be a, a real detective, I imagine, to sort of mine the text, because... Going into rehearsal, you are the go-to person, I guess, for a lot of the questions from the cast and, and the creatives around you. The interesting thing I've found working here at Opera Australia is the amount of study everyone puts in on their own. Everyone, the conductor is, is you know, and also a, a great fountain of information. They look into research and you know, dive into archives for if it's a Puccini they'll look at Puccini's notes for instance and and a lot of the singers will do the same thing they'll read many books about what their intentions were on, and, and the era and how it's set let alone the story so there are many es- experts uh, around me and that helps immensely because really um, when it boils down to it, I guess I'm the movement expert, which is really my forte, I think. Because, of course, your career has consisted of uh, two, two lives, I guess, as a dancer and now as a, a director of, of opera. Legs in both, both worlds. Is there a particular type of genre of music that, that you like listening to, having come from those two worlds? It might be something completely <laughs> unrelated to those worlds. It's... I... In high school, parents, I think, are a huge influence on you. So mum and dad, they listened to the Beatles and rock music of the 70s, so I grew up with that. Uh, And then, of course, there was Michael Jackson and those sorts of influences in the 80s for me uh, as a teenager. But then I would go and do my ballet classes and uh, classical music has always been there. Always been there in any sort of form whatsoever, Uh, you know, as far as... Not so much opera, but definitely ballet music or listening to symphonies or concertos or something like that on my own behalf. And then I learned the saxophone in high school. So uh, jazz became a wonderful escape for me. And I really loved the technicalities of jazz alongside the improvisation skills of jazz. Mm. And those sorts of things, I think, really, I tried to apply to a lot of the, the dance that I did because I loved the technicality of ballet, but I loved the freedom of contemporary dance as well. Um, and then throw in all of that, and I've often been seen or heard listening to heavy metal as well. So I really just love music mm. because I find it all inspiring and you don't know what you can glean from it at any point. Contemporary dance is a bit like jazz for the body, isn't it? All that, that, that improvisation and... Yeah, but what I'm uh, the interesting part, well, I mean, it's forever evolving and people are reinventing it all the time. And I find that quite, at the moment, I find contemporary dance moving very fast in, in um, 
what they're doing and the changes that take place. But for me, the really exciting thing for contemporary dance at the moment is the numbers. We seem to be getting a lot more companies or projects that include uh, the amount of dancers that normally a ballet company would have. And that, I think, is interesting because that's not really been the case in the past. You might have, you know, I think Bangara is our largest contemporary dance company in Australia at the moment. And I think they may have, I'm guessing, but it's it's maybe 30 dancers. Mm. You know, the Australian Ballet has 70-odd dancers. So, And and then I look at overseas companies and they're forever expanding and they're really pushing the boundaries, I think, of what can be done in large groups, as ballet has done through the years. Uh, um, painting pictures on that, that large canvas, if you like. Exactly, yeah, with many different paints and colours and all sorts of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the move from, from dance into the opera world, was that a difficult transition? I mean, I guess you're learning a lot on the job as you go, <laughs> aren't you? I, Peter, to be honest, I feel like that's all I've ever done is learnt on the job. I, I don't have any um, qualifications in directing or, for instance, or choreographing. There's no course for that I don't imagine well sort of there's dance courses but they don't really teach you choreography well they didn't when I was younger anyway I have a diploma in dance from the Australian Ballet School and then basically went from there straight into the Australian Ballet so and then from there into Sydney Dance Company so it's in my dance career it just sort of followed along when I when I stopped dancing it was a weird feeling because it's like a death that you have to mourn and I didn't cope very well. Uh, however, Graham Murphy asked me to assist him for an opera, Aida. And I, it just seemed to be, he's an idol of mine and a, and a mentor. So I said yes. And that was my first foray into opera. Uh, and I've been learning ever since. I don't know who said it, but you may know. But um, there's that saying about a, a dancer dies twice in yeah. their life. Know, when that their career comes to a halt, <laughs> and then when <laughs> and they're actually, mortality, yeah, yeah. yes, it's very true. It's very true. What stopped it for you? Injury or yeah. age? No, uh, I think they both, uh, both really. Mm-hmm. Um, I was around thirty six, thirty seven, and I was my back had uh, my lower back had been starting to be less stable. Um, no matter how much Pilates I was doing at the time. And of course, I went. That was one of the things I think might have been one of my strengths throughout my career was partnering, lifting girls above my head, holding them there, and then putting them down softly. That's what weightlifters don't get: mm. is that you can lift something up, but you've got to put something down. You can't down. drop those weights. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that over sixteen, seventeen years uh, takes its toll. Plus, I think I might have had a. Uh, genetic predisposition to lower back um, disc degeneration and that's basically was really the end and and I guess does that injury still niggle <laughs> I always say it only what's that somebody always says it only hurts when I laugh yeah. it only hurts when I dance right. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's there but it, it's not it's, it doesn't cause me any grief right. the move to the opera world how was that facilitated your Obviously um, sourced or spied at some time, perhaps by Lyndon Terracini? I think or, when... Or through Graham, maybe. Well, Graham, right. yeah. Graham Murphy, he... Again, he asked me to be a part of his... Uh, assist him for AIDA. And it was part of the opera conference where all the opera companies put money into a production. 
and it goes around Australia. And we started off in Perth with AIDA, and then it went to Melbourne, Sydney, uh, I think it went to Brisbane after that, and Adelaide. So I, I had a, a really good go around the country of my first foray into it. And as I went, again, I was learning on the job. It wasn't long after that, uh, that Lyndon, he did ask me to assist for Faust, Gounod's Faust, um, with an, a, a wonderful director, Bruno Ravella. And it's because I could, I have done Aida, which had a lot of dance in it, but now I had some experience with assisted, with directing in some sense. And so that was the idea, I guess. You'd have to ask Lyndon this story, but yeah. I think his idea was that he can do the dance, Bruno can revive it, and then when Bruno goes, I can maintain it. And again, that was a, um, an opera conference production, and it went around all the country, and another really big moment of me learning, but from somebody else, which I think is important too. Well, that dance background, yeah, it's a wonderful asset for a company to have, but also a, a director, especially when you you often have to move around large choruses. That's <laughs> that must be a skill on its own. That I have seen many revival directors go pale when they come to chorus calls, and it never phased me. It, it phased me that um, I was learning what they were singing and, and how they were singing. I didn't know much about the technicalities of the singing aspect, but moving people around, being spatially aware, that just seemed natural to me, coming from a you know, quarter ballet in the, in the Australian ballet, moving people around. And I had been briefly a rehearsal director for Sydney Dance Company as well. So I just had to change the mindset that singers aren't trained to movers be, well, they're not trained movers. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And it's about the voice. That's right. And so I respected that. I'm not a trained singer. So once I, it's it's about gaining trust and respect. And I respect their singing, and they respect that I'm not going to treat them like, you know, idiots or just because they they can't pick up movement as fast as somebody else. You show them that respect and you try and make it as easy as possible for them and they have repaid me tenfold. Mm-hmm. It's quite amazing. 
Do you treat the choruses as one big unit or as individual characters? How do you inspire them to do to follow you or to contribute to the stage pictures? Yeah. Every opera is different mm. and we often have different people coming in and out of the chorus. Um, I come into any rehearsal with as much enthusiasm as I can muster. And which does it's not hard for me. That's my that's my place. That's my home. I feel like I grew up in a rehearsal room. Um, so I come in there with a lot of energy and and more so through the years I've come in more organized, planned a lot of things out. Um, and really just try and not waste time. So enthusiasm and not wasting time, they're the two elements. So in that regard, to answer your question, I do treat them as a whole when yep. they're in the rehearsal yep. room. But uh, outside, I actually want to get to know them and get to know their strengths and weaknesses. So when we get to know their personalities as well. So if you are needing a certain person to do a, a little, like to move a, a chair or something, and there's some people that are more than willing to do that and some people that... Um, just can't do it for certain physical reasons or they just it just it's not their thing and so again it's about putting in the time and effort with people they're people first this their artists second and their singers after that you know it's, it's a vehicle to get to tell a story or to get somewhere and if i can impart some of my enthusiasm into what they are doing and, and they want to do it and then we expand on that and, and also uh, throughout a season you can see them grow in confidence in performance and you want them to remember that so then when we do something again I, I can relate back to whatever opera we were doing before and so say you did that really well I reckon you can do something you know tr let's try and make it better and, and expand upon your um, performance skills mm. You worked with Meryl, didn't you? Yes, I did. Yeah, and Graham Murphy. So you've had some great teachers along the way. Absolutely. Guiding you. What, what have you taken from, from those great teachers? And if you can identify any others, please do. <laughs> it depends. Because as a dancer, I, I was an interpretive artist. So that's a little different to being, you know, being on the floor as opposed to being in the audience. Yeah. So, you know, I loved performing Yuri Killian works. Graham Murphy, I, I was um, in the very original production of Nutcracker. Oh. And that was, at the time, I knew it was going to be great, but to have the, the longevity that it's had, and with Dame Margaret Scott, who is, you know, I went through the ballet school with her, to have her in there, plus uh, um, Varian Tweedy, there was a whole range of um, beautiful, stunning dancers, ballerinas, um, that did that Clara, older Clara role. And they, to see them get up there and do that every night, and it was just put, put a lot of things into perspective. You know, you might have a slight sore Achilles shame, but these <laughs> ladies are really doing well. So uh, I loved performing, and so I learned a lot from people like Stephen Heathcote, um, my mate Josh Constantine. And, and pretty much all of my colleagues and peers, Bradley Chatfield is another huge inspiration for me at Sydney Dance Company. Um, and of course the choreographers, uh, Yuri Killian, obviously, Graham Murphy, uh, Meryl I got to work with closely at Sydney Dance Company. 
and they all had something really different to offer and I often don't realise that, that you are imparting something that's from them yeah, it's a bit yeah. like your parents you turn into your parents sometimes you, things come out of your oh, mouth yeah. sometimes all the time <laughs> I think but yeah absolutely working with all these artists and, and you just absorb don't you whether it's mm. consciously or unconsciously yeah. and then you find at work at later stage it's like oh yeah, yeah. so used to say that or yeah and with Graham Murphy it's the, the creativity that he has in the room he, he sits back and he watches and then it's I don't know where it comes from he's obviously done some work but he's in the room and creates in the room and that's amazing um, Janet Vernon his, his um, long term collaborator and, and associate creator she taught me how to schedule how to organise how to um, really get those skills uh, to the best that I can and I, I'll forever be grateful for her for that. I'm still learning how to do that. That's never... The creative side I can work with it feels a bit more natural to me. The organisational side is still in development. <laughs> That's right. Because you do have to look ahead and say, where do I have to be at this stage of rehearsal? And what do I need to accomplish by then? Yes. The, the... And putting a schedule together for a dance work... I feel like I can do that because it's so familiar to me. Putting a schedule together for an opera is very different because you often are working with international artists who their English might not be their first language and they you don't know how quickly they may learn things. So it's, it's a really, it's a guessing game and none of them like to be hanging around doing nothing. So uh, I, that stresses me out the most out of everything that I do here. Um, English as a second language or non-English speakers. Do you have a translator in the room? Not so much a translator, but there are many people... A lot of opera singers speak Italian. Um, and I've been lucky enough that the majority of operas I've done have been in Italian. So... Uh, but generally, we work through that. It's quite amazing how... If everyone's on the same page... For instance, Faust, it's in French... So, and I had a, a, a singer, Ivan Magri, who's, who speaks Italian and was learning, doing the French. But we somehow just knew the storyline and I would say, go here, do this and do that. And he would look at me and then go, oh, no, he gets it. And that's what rehearsals is. Uh, that's what rehearsals should be, I think, yeah. is that you are, it's this play between artists and creators and find somewhere in the middle that you both or everyone can be excited about and those moments are one of some of the best moments I've ever had in in a room Uh, and music is the universal language Uh, exactly and dance as well or movement I should say yeah yeah so Shane born and raised in Adelaide in the 70s yes Adelaide is is quite a a cultural precinct uh, with the Adelaide Festival uh, every year and various theatres there and and what Mr Dunstan did for the state (laughs) yes Um, did you go to the festival as a kid? Was there, there much of an artistic influence in your, in your youth? In me, uh, only through my ballet and dance teachers. My parents aren't necessarily very artistic at all. Uh, I come from a working class, blue collar background. Dad worked at a Holden factory and mum was a stay-at-home uh, mum. And uh, So, no, they didn't... We, Dad loves movies and... That's where our sort of cultural hub was. <laughs> Every weekend we'd watch a movie or go to a cinema or something. 
But um, no, I n- never went to the uh, festival when I was a kid. I, it's much more, much later on when I became, when I joined the ballet school, I saw my first opera. Um, saw my first, uh, saw Cats the musical for the first time. Yeah. And, and so though it wasn't until I was about 15, 16 that I started, the, my world in that regard started to open up. So where did this urge to, to perform, to dance come from? So uh, we had these girls live uh, diagonally across the street and all three of them did ballet and they had a little ballet bar in their sort of shed and, and the mirrors and all that sort of thing. And my brother and I used to go over and play with them all the time and my brother decided that he would dance first. And uh, I would go and play football and then after that I'd go and watch him. And then the dance teacher, I don't quite remember this, mum tells this story, but uh, the dance teacher noticed that I was doing the steps under the table while I was watching my brother. She said, why don't you get up and do it? And I was, my ego kicked in. I was like, if he can do it, of course I can do it. And so I started dancing as well with my brother. And we sort of did a reverse thing. He started going, he gave up and I kept going and the rest is history, really. You think it's an, an innate thing? You're sort of, you're, you're born to dance? I mean, if you were responding in that way and, and somebody saw it and encouraged you to go further. Encouragement, I think, is the key word there because, and males, because they're reluctant to or there's not that many want to, um, we get a lot of encouragement. So I think it was my ego that was appeased. But also my brother and I and my whole, uh, all my siblings, we were very physical, running around all the time. I was, I was, mum says I was always outside with my grandfather, you know, in the go-kart or whatever, just helping him in the yard. My brother was a bit more inside drawing. Um, so I think there was a physical aspect of my life that I loved and mix that in with the art. It was, I think that it just all appealed to me and, and again, with the ego, uh, was fantastic and you know dancing with 30 other girls every day is not not a bad thing either did you cop much flack from school yeah I got into a few fights mostly in primary school which was interesting and uh, but nothing really serious just a couple of a little bit of sledging but because I played football and cricket as well I sort of had a group of guys that would you know help me out if I, if I got into trouble high school was interesting because you know hormones kick in and you mentioned that you dance with other girls and they're all of a sudden they're very interested in coming along <laughs> can I do that mate go away yeah. <laughs> AFL is a ballet of sorts yes chaotically <laughs> <laughs> yeah I played AFL for a while and I loved it I still love it um, and there's always this comparison between ballet and football uh, what I love about football is it's black and white. You either win or you lose. But either way, you're back in the sheds having a beer with the opposition player. You're just you know, nearly given a black eye to or received one. Ballet is, is much more refined in the fact that everything's rehearsed. Everything is set out and what you have to do, you have to communicate. So to me, it's, it's a basic difference between sport and communication, competition and communication. That's... However, the one thing that they have in common is they're both physical. Mm. They both require huge amounts of exercise, skill, and dedication. Um, but their aims are very different in my head. There would have come a point, I imagine, where you would have had to choose one or the other. 
<laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. And yeah, it was around about, I think, 13 or 14. And my dance teacher at the time said that, you know, you should audition for the Australian Ballet School. And I was uh, year 10 at that stage and uh, about to go into year 11. And I thought, well, I'd really like to do year 12. And she said, well, look, why don't you just tick the box? Back in those days, we'd tick a box saying, audition only for experience. So I ticked that box. And then about six weeks later, I got a letter in the mail saying, you've been accepted into the Australian Ballet School. And so there was a dilemma about whether to do year 12 or not. Um, And then I found out I was the only one in South Australia to get in. So I thought, maybe I should go. This is too good an opportunity. Mum and Dad signed off on it and jumped on the train back then and mm-hmm. found myself in Spencer Street Station at nine o'clock in the morning in my suitcase, ready to... Start the new chapter. Yeah. No doubt heard of that um, ballet choreographed by Robert Helpman, The Display. Yes. Yeah. About um, uh, Australian footballers on a picnic. And, oh, I didn't uh, I actually haven't seen it. I've, I've spoken to, um, oh my God, Paul Saliba yeah, about yeah. it, and he was the, um, the Liebert. Oh, I'm thinking of Liebert, excuse me. There is a Liebert in The Display. Oh, is there, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the, the display draws parallels between the courtship rituals of the lyrebird and the mateship displayed by a group of Australian men as they attempt to seduce a woman at a bush picnic. So everything at the ballet doesn't necessarily have to be beautiful. Beautiful, It can be very physical and, as Helpman proved there, sort of deal with issues of masculinity. Mm, definitely. Incidentally, that, that was a world premiere um, in 1964 at Her Majesty's Theatre in Adelaide oh. as part of the Adelaide Festival of Arts. I'd love to have seen it. Me too. And I have heard of it. I'm ashamed that I don't know more about it. Well, there's your homework. (laughs) (laughs) So, easing into the Australian Ballet School, um, were your folks, how did they get their head around that, that that their son is off to be a ballet dancer? They were supportive? Very, very supportive. I mean, they didn't have hardly any money. And I was fortunate enough that I could uh, back in those days I applied for Oz study and so I got you know a certain amount of money every fortnight and that went a long way to keeping me there uh, without working for a while and then in uh, second year I had to uh, do some waitering as well and that was difficult that was I, mean, I think everyone does it really but you know you spend from 8:30 to 5:30 in a ballet studio working your butt off and then uh, six o'clock you're at the cafe serving people until one time it was like one o'clock in the morning and then you just 
feel like you've dropped your head on the p- pillow and you get up and you do it all again. So it was difficult for some parts of it, but mostly the, the overriding want to do it uh, certainly nullified any of that. You're at the bar every day, well, that's part of it. What else, what are the other subjects that you're learning at, at the ballet school? Are there uh, academic subjects you sit down and study? or <laughs> I'm curious, is there acting classes? Well, it's a very different school to when I was there now. Right. Uh, nowadays, there, it's, it's definitely you have your um, ballet curriculum or dance curriculum and you have your school curriculum. So you can actually parallel... Do both. Do both to, to finish your, both of your schooling. When I was there, no, that you, the, the entry requirements were that you were 15 and above and have completed year 10. So I was 15 turning 16 and I had finished, I'd completed year 11 because I didn't go to kindergarten. So I was a year ahead. Um, but some of the other subjects, I mean, we did character dance, we did partnering, part of deux, we did um, modern Graham technique we also did benesh notation for a bit we did music history dance history um uh the men the guys did uh we had weight session i think three or four times a week and i think that was about it apart from your ballet class every day so it's 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 more physical than study And what about the faculty? Are they uh, ex-dancers from the, the company? Most of them were, yeah. yes. Yeah. And uh, they were, actually, they were quite wonderful. I mean, Robert Ray was my first year ballet teacher, and then Kelvin Coe was my second and third year. And uh, both of them I owe a great deal. Kelvin, in particular, really made me think about... We were learning Vaganova technique, and uh, which is a Russian ballet technique, which I think they use quite predominantly in the ballet school now. And I said, I'm trying to get this certain style that you're asking. And he said, yes, that's a great base, but you have to come up with Shane Placentino's style. And his technique is the one that's going to suit your body because everyone's body is different. And that just clicked for me. And all of a sudden, I could do so much more because I was not worried about what I was supposed to do. Well, not worried about what everyone else was doing and worry about what I had to do to be better. Yeah, you had the permission to... Uh, exactly, he gave me so much permission yeah. and and then guided me in the most uh, fatherly way, I can say. Well, maybe an uncle, but he was really a huge influence. Not dissimilar to drama school, really, where yeah. you are taught all these methods of acting and then it's up to you to decide what works best for you to, yeah. to, uh, to deliver the work. So you start off in the in the core, I guess. Is there an expectation that you will graduate to principal? From whom? Yeah, <laughs> I suppose. Yes, from the individual, yes. But, but you've got all sorts of eyes looking at you, I suppose. And I think also the most important set of eyes is yours on yourself. We, I feel like we are, dancers are born in front of a mirror. And it's now a bugbear of mine because they can... I've heard this recently with singers too. They can hear, sometimes they don't hear themselves very well. And I think dancers are the same. We don't see ourselves very well because we're hugely critical, probably hypercritical. And it's a natural thing, not a natural thing. It's something that I was am very conscious of as a dance teacher is that you might say three corrections, uh, which would be the negative side. But you also have to give three positive things that happen. 
I'm very aware of that as a, as a teacher. But um, so the expectation for me, I was so happy to get into the Australian ballet. I didn't think I would. And with my colleagues around me, they were all my other dance, male dance students in particular I was comparing to. They were all fantastic as well. But two of us got in, males, and I was just happy to be there. But I did think at the time, now it's now you have to really work hard. So I tried as best I could. What makes for a good dancer? There, there has to be... Depends on what the dancer... I think if um, you want to be a ballet dancer, there's an element of genetics. You, there's so we're talking about the physicality. Physicality, yeah, yeah. you. And I didn't have a lot of that to the extent that other people did. Like this, the, the line, what you're trying to do in, in ballet is you're trying to create a... Most of the time, you're trying to create a line and... Uh, uh, a really thin line and then extend that line so you're supposed to look long and extended on stage and there are ways that you can do that now if you're genetically gifted as a dancer you'll look like Sylvie Guillen mm. and you'll have these hyperextended legs along with these huge insteps at the end now in saying that um, I've seen many dancers that have those physical attributes but don't have the drive and passion and will. So those two things, when they come together, are very potent. But you need to be really successful. You do need, I reckon you need both, but there's not anything stopping you if you have the will, dedication and, and uh, want. There must be um, the need for an emotional intelligence also. You're playing all sorts of roles on the stage, whether it be opera or, or theatre or, or, or dance. Uh, you must be able to, to, to connect to those, those emotions to, to support your acting because, again, as well as the, the, the physicality, yeah. you've got to communicate a story to an audience through, through acting. So I guess good dancers have to be good actors too. Yes, but again, it depends on the on the dance. Because even in the Australian ballet, we would obviously we'd do the classics like Swan Lake, Giselle, Sleeping Beauty, and so you're telling a, a, an actual arc of a story. Mm. But we also did contemporary dance too. We did the Killian ballet. So what are you trying to convey there? So you, it's not necessarily a story. It's at more abstract, but more of an emotion or a feeling or a theme. Yeah. So I saw that some people were better at others uh, other genres than that but I liked to try and be the best I could at both because I saw that I would get more work if I could be as versatile as possible and I was never going to be the prince I didn't see myself as a prince but I also wasn't going to be the the super flexible and, and languid contemporary dancer either I was like somewhere in between and I think I could hold a girl above my head for longer than most. So that was where I saw my strengths. Uh, six degrees of separation in these conversations. I can <laughs> often ask about people no longer with us. And you've covered a, a couple in this conversation. But Dame Margaret Scott, what was she like as, as a leader and a teacher? And a, Wonderful a, and scary. <laughs> <laughs> as you would hope a head of a dance school to be. Uh, and... I, got, I, I caught her right at the end of her tenure at the school. She was the last... We were the last graduating year uh, when she left. And she would tell you these things and it would take me a while to get what she was talking about. And then she would lift up her skirt 
to her, just below her groin, and show you. And, you know, she was 70 years old then, I, I think, and you would see this definition and, and she, you could see what she was trying to tell us. Because dancers respond very well to mimicking and um, if somebody shows you something, then we're very quick at picking that up physically. And so that, it's, that's sort of how it's been passed down. We mm. don't necessarily read how to ballet, how to do ballet. Yeah. We're shown. Yeah. And she was one of the best at that. Illustrating. Yes. Illustrating. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Shane, um, a whole host of operas you, you've covered in your, your brief history as, a, as a, an opera director. How long, when was your first debut? 2019, 18? No, no. no. It's been on and off. So right. 2008 was Aida with Graham. Yeah. 2015, Faust. And then 2017, uh, Mary Widow. Uh, then back to Faust, West Side Story. Um, I'm missing one there. Madame Butterfly. Turandot. Uh, uh, Turandot, just recently, yeah. And, and coming up, Lohengrin. Mm-hmm. So what is the task of a revival director? It's basically to put on the opera as, as well as you can... Uh, given the information you've got. You know, sometimes you have the, the original director with you and often you don't. So you glean as much information as you can, archival videos, and uh, try and stay true to the original production as much as you can. There's going to be things here and there that you, with different artists, might interpret, interpret it a different way. But as long as you can see that the intention of what the original director wanted uh, is still there, I think it, it's, that's, the, that's my job, really. So, so as well as being a linguist, you've got to be a bit of a historian, don't you? Um, yes. Investigate the world that you, and mine the world that you are creating. That's right. And I'm pretty lu- very lucky here that a lot of the productions that I've revived have been done before, like Turandot. And, you know, most of the chorus had done that production, you know, for 10 years. And so some of the questions I was asking them, but I do, one of the things I definitely learned from Graham Murphy was collaboration. You, no one can put on anything by themselves. It's, it's very hard. I mean, maybe you can do a podcast, but (laughs) (laughs) apart from that, it's, it's very difficult to put on a theater production, a movie or or a play or anything without a a whole group of people coming together. And really that's the director's job. I see that from, I get that from a Graham Murphy, um, template, get everyone together, talk about it. And then you drive that vision. You're the coach. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. <laughs> How much time would, would you spend preparing a show before rehearsals even begin? Uh, as much as I can. Okay. I, I actually spent quite a lot of time last year coming out of the first lockdown. I spent about three months on Merry Widow and I'd done it before and I knew it back to front, but I was so nervous about going back to work. And I've been spending, um, uh, I've probably spent the last five weeks looking at Lohengrin at the moment. But it's, it's, a, it's a tricky one because I'm not very good with German and it's longer and it's Wagner. So it's my first German Wagner opera.
Do you get a longer rehearsal period to put it together because of of that length? A little bit, not necessarily. Um, Often, the the, well, I don't know. This seems to be this situation seems to be because this opera is an extra hour, let's say, than uh, a lot of operas I've done. It depends on the production. Like Graham Murphy's opera, like for instance, Turandot, is an hour less time. Yeah. But I would say it's one of the, it's more difficult to put on because there's, there's a lot happening on there's that stage. There's so yeah. much yeah. movement. And Graham loves to um, use the chorus with movement. And getting a large group of people to move all at once and they're not trained that way, that takes more time. Whereas perhaps Lohengrin, it will take time and I've got, a, I've got enough time, but there's not a lot of Graham Murphy movement in it, which I'm sort of glad about. Mm. <laughs> well, in the title role of Lohengrin, you've got operatic sensation, The yeah. Honest Kaufman, which is um, very exciting, especially for Melbourne audiences who will get to see it. It must be exciting for you to work with a, a talent of that calibre also. I can't wait. I, I Is it daunting? Yes. Yeah. I, I am daunted, but, you know, I've worked with other singers that, okay, he's the most famous tenor in the world at the moment. Mm-hmm. But I've also worked with some amazing tenors and some amazing sopranos and mezzos and um, basses that once you get in, everyone's equal when they get into, this, into the room. And everyone has got the same idea and the same passion and love for the art form. So as long as I'm organised and treat everyone with respect, I usually get um, a lot of respect and a lot of... Um, questions really and then we work together it's see again it's collaboration if 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 
Mr. Kaufman, <laughs> I'll call him that at first. If he wants to collaborate, then yeah, let's do it. I, I really would love to know what his perspective on Lohengrin is. Yeah. Has he done the role before in other productions? Yes, I believe he has. Right. Um, but singers are known for particular roles, aren't they? And they might travel all around the world in different productions. That's true. Um, I don't think he's done this production, but I believe he's done other productions. And uh, I think it was his first Wagner opera. I might be wrong, but you might want to check on that. But he, uh, yes, he's definitely done it before. So in a nutshell, what's Lohengrin about? Yes. Now this is where <laughs> it gets you, interesting. Can you do it in a nutshell or several nutshells? <laughs> well, what I will say about this production is that there's the story of Lohengrin as Wagner wrote it. And it's basically the story of Elsa, who gets accused of killing her brother by Ortrud and Telramund. And that Telramund and Ortrud have these conniving ambitions and uh, to get more power, basically. And Elsa is very religious and prays for a knight to come and save her. And when she's asked who's going to stand up for you she says you know i'm going to pray for a night they call for someone to come and uh, hence me known um Lohengrin comes in in the wagner story on a uh, on a skiff dragged by a swan and so already there when that said and you imagine that you think okay so we're in a sort of magical mystical world here that uh has it's probably myth a lot of myth a bit of Game of Thrones happening already. <laughs> <laughs> so Lohengrin uh, defends her and uh, defeats Telramund and Telramund is devastated and agrees to marry Elsa on one condition, that she doesn't ask who he is or where he's from. And so they go off uh, and Telramund and Ortrud try again to work out who this mystery person is and why he has so much power and can defeat nearly anyone. Uh, and they try to manipulate Elsa into finding out who he is. And she's pretty strong in that regard. And they, they fail. They fail miserably. Uh, however, after Elsa and Lohengrin get married, she can't help herself and she says, nothing can beat our love. Why can't you tell me who you are and, and she's forthright in saying please tell me who you are and once that happens the swan comes back on with the skiff and he, he has this lovely beautiful aria at the end where he explains to everyone who he is where he's come from who his father is and why he has to leave and there is the gist of the story of that sort of version of Wagner's version. Now, in this production, it's set in 19... Uh, Post-World War II Germany in an old theatre. Fabulous. Busted-down theatre. It's very monochrome, black and white and charcoal. And it has, we have a huge revolve with these theatre loges on one side of the revolve. The chorus are crawling in through them. Then as the revolve turns around, behind the loges is a different scene. And there's many sort of... Because it, it's set in a theatre, there's many cloths that you can see being pulled down and lifted out to represent different scenes. There's a platform with a trapdoor. There's suitcases. There's crowns. There's paper hats. There's planes. There's symbolism is huge. There's crosses chalkboarded onto a set. There's runes that are 
painted onto the set. Um, Orchard has some runes in her pocket that she uses to try and tell the future. It's quite... It feels, at the moment for me, I'm trying to marry the two stories together. Because mm. it feels like one... They're, they're parallel. And I'm trying to get... I'm trying to marry sections of them together because uh, the director, Olivier Puy, he also uh, directed La Juive. Uh, that was just been on here in Sydney. Yeah. Still playing in Sydney. And I, I went along to see that and some of the same themes happen. You know, there's a lot of religion. It's very... Everyone has a lot of faith. But what I think he's playing with here is Christianity and mythology with, with the runes and um, who believes in what and what can come from uh, which, which faith. Mm-hmm. And, a, and also a basic good and evil story mixed in with a little bit of resurrection. Uh, it's quite fascinating. And I am very, as you can tell, yeah. trying to figure it all out <laughs> before we start rehearsals in three weeks. All playing out on a huge canvas, huge themes, huge images to create. Um, it's opera. It's all huge. It's, it's opera. Yeah, all, all very heightened. Um, only playing Melbourne, isn't it? That's right. Yes. Yeah, there's... Wagner has an expanded orchestra, so the pit in Melbourne is perfect size for that. What will you be doing opening night? Are you, are you good on opening nights? or Not really. No. I run around a lot trying to look calm, <laughs> but uh, there comes a point, and it's around about half hour call, and if I'm lucky I can get out the front in time to have a, a quick champagne just to, just to basically calm the nerves, because it's it's... You put all this work, prep work, rehearsals, and then you get on stage and you, you light the thing and you rehearse the singers and then eventually you've got to let it go. You've got to give it to them, mm. give them ownership of it, let them discover the story in front of an audience. And that is magical. I, love, I used to love that as a dancer and now I'm learning to love it as a, as a director as well. Yes, but if, if you've done the work, you've just got to trust that it, it is well done for itself. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you obviously have by the conversation that we've, we've had today. Are you able to sit in the auditorium or are you wandering around at the back? No, you're, you're no, stuck I, in there with everybody else. I, I'm stuck in there with everyone else. Yeah. And there's, if you're sitting next to me, I, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but I'm generally pretty calm. Yeah. I, I, do, I do a lot of breathing and, you know, the masks uh, we have to wear in theatres these days help a bit. Yes. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm nervous, but hopefully I, p- I peer calm on the outside. In a romance of mythical proportions, our knight of the swan rescues his damsel, asking only one thing in return. Elsa stands accused of a horrible crime. She prays for a champion and a noble knight appears. But his help comes with a condition. She must never ask his name. Does true love demand blind faith? Lohengrin is a fantastical romance. It's filled with shimmering string passages and angelic choruses, including the famous Bridal March. Wagner described his music as streams of gold ravishing the senses of the beholder. Director Olivier Puy sets his battle between good and evil in the ruins of Berlin in the aftermath of World War II. 
A monumental revolving tiered set depicts a decaying theatre, where emblems of German romanticism gather dust. Opera Australia presents Wagner's Lohengrin at the State Theatre Melbourne from May 14th to 24th. The production is led by the great Jonas Kaufmann in the role of Lohengrin, and it is directed by my guest today on stages, Shane Placentino. Toy toy to Shane and all of the team at OA. Thanks for joining us in this episode. You can check out all of the episodes featured in the podcast thus far by visiting our website, www.stagespodcast.com.au. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time.